presidential campaign in my lifetime thankfully came to an end. No excitement or enthusiasm about that among us, is there? For most of us, it's been a painful experience. Regardless of who you voted for or against, and in my lifetime, I've never known more frustration over the whole issue of voting for or against people. It's, it's the most contentious experience of my life. And here's why this has been so painful to all of us. It's not for the reasons that many of us would conclude. I think that it's been so painful for so many because every one of us knows instinctively in our spirit that leadership matters. It's a big deal. We know that. It matters in the family, in business, in churches, in a nation. Leadership matters in every facet of life and in our spirits. We know that. And we just looked at what uh, was before us and there's just angst about it all, isn't there? After almost two years of exhaustive media attention on the character and leadership flaws of every candidate running for the office of president, as I wrestled with what to speak about today, months, a couple of months ago, I just kept feeling led by God to focus our attention in this way. For the next few minutes, we're going to talk about the strengths and leadership characteristics of the most extraordinary leader who's ever walked the face of the planet. We need to be reminded of what leadership in its purest form looks like. Because we know what leadership in its flawed form looks like, right? We're going to look at Jesus of Nazareth. He is the focus of innumerable books and movies, countless paintings, statues, buildings, pieces of literature, places throughout history and the world have been influenced by him, and he wasn't even there in those places. But yet his his image, his influence is unmistakable. Right now, there are around 2 billion people on the planet who would identify themselves as Christians and credit Jesus with being the person responsible for transforming their lives and their eternal destinies more than any other person. How does that happen? How does that happen? It happens because Jesus was and is the consummate leader. There have been none like him before, none like him since. He's superior to all the rest. He's the greatest man, the greatest leader who's ever lived. And every one of us, every one of us is called to emulate him, to become like him, to lead like him, to become people of character like him. And this morning, I'm going to spend the remaining portion of our time together briefly drawing your attention to seven, seven fundamental leadership characteristics that Jesus consistently lived out. Characteristics I would encourage you to make note of because if you're a leader, these are characteristics that you need to model. Are these all of the characteristics that you need to model? Of course not. Nor are they all the characteristics that Jesus modeled and lived out. But they are seven of the fundamental ones that he was consistent in, in the representation of. And if you and I will listen close and reflect on this deeply this morning, I think by the end, I think that many of us will have a renewed respect for Jesus' wisdom, leadership, and influence in our world. I think if you and I will listen carefully as we think about this, you'll be filled with gratitude and hope that the day is soon coming when He's going to rule and reign for all eternity, and there will be no evil rivaling His influence or leadership. 
I think by the end, if we listen close, you'll be better equipped to extend Jesus' leadership influence in your sphere of relationships because fundamentally that is one of the things that he desired for you, for me, as his children. So with those things in mind, let's consider for a few minutes some of the fundamental leadership characteristics that the Bible tells us Jesus consistently lived out. Seven characteristics for those of you who feel better counting. Okay, seven. Seven characteristics. The first characteristic of, of leadership that Jesus modeled uh, so, uh, so giftedly, so uh, amazingly, was that Jesus powerfully communicated vision. It really begins there. He communicated vision. Jesus' vision has always been for the entire world to someday become a virtuous, caring place, might I say, again. It was that way in the garden. But his dream, his vision, was that the day would come where it would be virtuous, caring, harmonious, free. That it would become a just and grace-filled kind of place again. A place where people are humbly living out under the loving, gentle rule and reign of God, character-filled lives. That's, that's his dream. It's his vision for our world. I want you to listen to the concise, compelling vision that Jesus communicated in Matthew 22, verse 37 and following. Note to self, you've heard this before recently, okay? You can tell me in just a moment when we talked about this. Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God. Get the picture here. Just love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments, Jesus says. Hmm, does that sound familiar? We talked about it last week. And... About 10 weeks consecutively leading up to that, if you were here last week and remember what I talked about last week. On, on another occasion, Jesus further clarified this by saying this, and I thought this was interesting. I didn't include this last week, so I thought I'd gratuitously throw it in here uh, this week. Uh, aren't you encouraged, though, I'm not making you say the Ten Commandments this morning? We, we could, but we, we won't. Uh, we've done that. For those of you who maybe weren't uh, around, we've been doing that for about 11, 12 weeks. So. Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus had this to say, uh, clarifying what he said in Matthew 22. He says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. That's, that's the golden rule kind of lived out. Do to others as you'd like them to do to you. This is the essence, Jesus says, of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Remember, we talked about that phrase at the end of Matthew 22 last week. He, he's saying this is the whole second half of the Ten Commandments really here. Just do to others as you'd have them do to you. Now, can you imagine a world where everyone treated others like they would want to be treated in return? Can you imagine a world like that? Honestly, most of us can't. But I want you to try to I'm going to stretch your mind, your imagination this morning, because this is Jesus' vision for the world. Can you imagine a world where politicians treated others the way they would want to be treated? Where the press... The news reporters would speak about others the way they would want to be spoken about. Can you imagine a world where teachers and financial consultants and corporate executives and welders and plumbers and builders and street maintenance workers and custodians and landscapers treated others the way they would want to be treated if the roles were reversed? Can you imagine a world where professional athletes and artists and musicians and actors and Hollywood in general and nurses and physical therapists and pastors and everyone else treated others the way they would like to be treated in return? 
I mean, this is Jesus' vision for the world. And His intent for those of us who are His followers is that we will not just pontificate about these things, though He does want us to talk about them. His dream, His vision, is that we as His children will lead the way in bringing that into existence. He wants us to help others catch His vision for the world in which we live. That's why he repeatedly told his followers things like this, Matthew 5, verse 14 and following. He said, you, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus just wanted us to understand that we were torchbearers of his vision. We are. When it comes to casting vision, no one's ever done a better job at that than Jesus. Not Steve Jobs. Not Winston Churchill, not Martin Luther King, not a long list of other people we could talk about, all of whom significant in their own way. No one has more powerfully communicated vision than Jesus. But he was more than just a visionary. Jesus also strategically implemented brilliant plans. I mean, you think about that. It, some leaders are really gifted visionaries, but when it comes to implementation of the strategy, have a strategy, they just fall, fall by the wayside. And others can implement a strategy, but they couldn't come up with the vision for you know if a gun was to their head. Jesus was a master of both. I mean, contrary to the belief of some, Jesus was not some '60s hippie type guy who aimlessly roamed around the Middle East preaching endlessly about peace and love, you know passing out bumper stickers and peace signs. Oh, let me smoke a joint with you. This, this was not Jesus. That's some Jesus of people's imagination. Jesus was a brilliant strategist, unbelievably purposeful. Galatians 4.4 reveals this to, to the extent that, uh, that he was that way. It tells us that his birth was not a random coincidental event. It was at the fullness of time that Jesus entered in the world. As if to say that there was a period of time before that it wouldn't have been appropriate, and a period after it would have been too late. He showed up at the exact moment in history that was absolutely pivotal for God to show up in flesh. If he was that purposeful about his first arrival, how purposeful do you think he will be about his second? Acts 1 reveals that Jesus had a specific plan for how his vision and message was going to be spread around the world. Just before his return to his throne in the heavens, Jesus commanded his disciples with these words, Acts 1, verses 4 and verse 8. He, says, he tells them, Don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. And he goes on in verse 8 to explain about that. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. He's saying to them, he's saying, first of all, he said, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. You need power from above. Wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit fills you. You need God's guidance, the Father's guidance in this. He'll send you the Holy Spirit to empower you and help you with this. And, 
And so, wisely, they went to Jerusalem. If you read the book of Acts, they go to Jerusalem, and they hang out there, and they pray, waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. And when he does show up, they begin to implement his plan, because Jesus' plan, as he lays out here in verse 8, was that his disciples were to spread his message First, they're at Jerusalem. You remember Jerusalem, the capital of all of Israel, but in particular, the capital of what region? Judea, which was the second target that he, in his concentric circle of bullseyes here that he, that he describes. And then to the north of Judea was a region that was called Samaria, right? So you've got Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, what we think of as the West Bank, and then that was the third strategic location, and from there they were to carry Jesus' message to the ends of the earth, he says. And speaking of his disciples, he was pretty clear here about what their role was. They were to be witnesses of his suffering, of his life, of his teaching, of his character. They represented a huge strategic part of his plan. They were the third key leadership characteristic in Jesus' life. Not only did he strategically implement plans, but Jesus carefully established teams, his disciples, to carry out his plan. He established them, motivated them, deployed them. There were the three, if you remember the disciples, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, Think of them as Jesus' own small group. Some of us think of ourselves, we think, we're too, we're too, I'm too busy to be in a small group with other people. Well, then you're too busy. Because Jesus, who came to save the world, figured it out. He figured out how to be in a small group and thought, I, not even Jesus is a lone ranger in the whole deal. What's your problem? What's mine? Maybe, maybe we're the ones with the Messiah complex sometimes. When the truth of the matter is the Messiah doesn't have the complex, but carries it out. In part because he doesn't try to do it alone. Jesus carefully established teams of his disciples, the three. Then there were the twelve, Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot. Beyond that, there were the group of 72 other disciples that Jesus organized into pairs. Even they weren't on their own. He sent them out in pairs all over Jerusalem, all over Samaria, the whole, the whole of, of the countryside. If we were to play that out all the way, you would come to today and you'd say, Oh, well, Southwoods is one of these teams of Jesus' disciples who are called to be witnesses image bearers, light bearers. We've been called and deployed, sent out into the world, our portion of the world, to make a difference for his sake, to be his witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit, to tell people everywhere that there is one who's good and he loves them more than he loved his own life. And if they'll humble themselves before him, they too can be saved. Scriptures reveal a lot about the fourth characteristic that Jesus lived out. Jesus patiently developed these people, these disciples. He didn't just like appoint them and say, have at it, good luck. What you find is almost daily Jesus was instructing his disciples. He, he taught them about anger, lust, what to do about divorce, how to quench the desire for revenge, how to be transformed by the power of love. 
Jesus patiently taught his disciples about humility and prayer and honesty and trust. How to invest in what lasts and how to not worry about stuff that's going to pass away. He clarified both. Taught them about the importance of showing mercy, the wisdom of persistence, the path to a righteous life. On and on we could go. But Jesus did more than just teach. In fact, what you find when you look at the scriptures is that Jesus was effective largely because of the fifth leadership characteristic that Jesus was reflected in Jesus' life, and that was that Jesus faithfully demonstrated character. He didn't just teach about it. He wasn't by nature a lecturer, though he did teach. What did he do? He lived it out. He modeled it with his life. You know, Jesus' life was so thoroughly saturated with virtue and character that on one occasion, he boldly looked a crowd of his most ardent and vocal, determined enemies in the eye, and here's what he said, John 8, 46. Read it in your Bible if you want to. You can just follow along the screen if you, if you can't get there quick. It says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? Whoa! They didn't even have to ask that question during the political campaign, did they? Jesus says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? If you're a leader somewhere, a word of advice, don't try this. <laughs> don't say to your staff, don't even say to your children, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? You are going to get blasted. But Jesus could get away with it. It's not because somebody altered the Bible. He got away with it because he faithfully demonstrated spotless virtue and character, and everyone knew it. It made him mad. Over and over again, you see, see them sending people to Jesus, trying to trip him up so they'd have something to use to accuse him. It's the same thing as today's press conferences. That's, it's not new. It's been around for centuries. When you combine Jesus' character with all the other traits that I've mentioned, they enabled Jesus to model a sixth characteristic of good leadership. Jesus courageously was able to lead positive change. Without fear of character reprisals, Jesus was able to boldly throw money changers out of the temple and get away with it. He was able to spar verbally with his enemies and his detractors and the crowds understand who was right and who was wrong. And understand that he was right, but there was a gentleness and a character about him that didn't despise the other people. Jesus was able to challenge the dysfunctional religious status quo of his day the brokenness of people's lives. And did everybody love that? Come on. Of course not. But they understood that Jesus was a man of character, a man of God, and even those who 
plotted his execution understood that they were not dealing with an ordinary man. Well, the fascinating scenes, I don't have time to develop really much, but Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, who is disillusioned with truth in his day because of all the deception, all the deceit, all the manipulation that he himself had been a part of as well as been the recipient of by those around him. And there's this little discourse between him and Jesus and he said, I came to bear witness to the truth, Jesus tells him. And Pilate looks at him and says, what is the truth? That was true of their day. To some degree it will always be true of life on the planet until Jesus comes to set it all right. On some level, the fact that we're disillusioned by that is illustration that we have this naive view of the world and the nature of man and the consequences of sin. But Jesus pursued character that allowed him to to lead in positive change, to courageously call those who were spiritually seeking to authentically turn to God. And there's even a window of opportunity for that for Pontius Pilate as he was standing there before him. There's a window of opportunity for you and me. We'll humble ourselves. Ultimately, it was Jesus' character his spotless, blameless character that allowed him to die on the cross as a substitute for the sins of people past, present, and future. And I don't know if you've thought much about it, but generally speaking, this is one of those unique characteristics of leadership that Jesus models. Think about this. Leaders generally don't die for their followers, do they? Usually followers die for their leaders, but on the cross, Jesus was demonstrating a seventh characteristic of good and godly leadership. He was humbly modeling servant leadership. If you read people who reflect pretty deeply on the subject of leadership, the whole concept of servant leadership didn't really exist in the whole, whole of our world prior to the cross. It was really at the cross that Jesus introduced this revolutionary, countercultural, counterintuitive thing where the leader humbled himself before his team, his followers. On the cross, Jesus followed through on what he had taught his disciples a, a few years earlier when he spoke these words. He said in Matthew, or, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and following, fascinating words that well worth consideration by all of us, well beyond our time this morning. But he says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over other people. What's he talking about? They manipulate, they coerce, they use money to accomplish their ends. They, they dominate others and there's a, there's a whole forcing people against their will to do certain things. They lord it over other people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, he says, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. You know, all of these leadership characteristics and more that we could talk about if time would allow, all of them are what prompt me to say Jesus was and is the consummate leader in all of history. There's been no one like him in the past. There'll be no one like him in the future. He is the greatest leader who's ever lived. And he wants us to understand that every one of us here can become an extraordinary leader like him. If we'll follow in his footsteps. Plenty of people in the world who can cast a vision. But it's to go a place that God would not go. Plenty of people in the world can build teams to fulfill objectives that God would not pursue. God's calling you and me to become like Jesus that we might be the light of the world and help it go in the direction God wants it to go. Remember the prayer of Jesus? Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. It's his prayer. He's done more than just utter a prayer which should never be neglected. He's appealing to his followers to be the fulfillment of that prayer in large in large measure. So I want to ask you, have you invited Jesus to be the leader, the unrivaled Lord and leader of your life? I mean, that is what it means when you describe this vision, the love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's, it's to have him be in charge of you. Not you even. Him. You made him the leader of your life. He's worthy of that kind of faith and trust. And more than that, his character is worthy of our complete emulation, our imitation. So have you devoted yourself to to fully developing the character, the leadership traits that Jesus modeled with his life? If you will, the world will be a better place. Maybe not all of it, because it takes more than any one of us to accomplish the kinds of change that God dreams of in this world. But your portion of the world can be a better place. And you and I will emulate the character and the leadership traits of Jesus. We'll be better equipped to extend Jesus' leadership influence into our sphere of influence. And like Jesus, we'll be empowering others to grow and become like him in the process. So... Will you devote your life to that? Will you do that? We're going to uh, sing one more song together, and we're going to sing it as a congregation. Um, it's not a special. It's something that we all need to sing. It's one that we like around here, no other name. And when we sing this song, my hope is that you'll kind of pour your heart out to God and just acknowledge before him that he is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and you are pleased with that. You're okay with that. Sing that from your heart.
And in the process, just invite him to fill you, to strengthen you, to equip and empower you. You know, wherever you go, whatever circles you're in, to be a light. Help him to give you courage. Ask him to help you live out the kind of character that will sustain that courage. See, some of us think, some of us want to look at the stuff going on in, in Washington and, you know, we're right there shooting BBs at all of them, figuratively speaking, when the truth of the matter is we're doing the same stuff they're doing. That is the fundamental essence of what hypocrisy is. God is calling you and me to live lives of holiness so that we can fundamentally make a difference in the world and courageously lead out. You humble yourself before God and renew your devotion to being a man or a woman of God so that God can use you, use us for good in the world in which we live. Let's stand together. That's what it's going to take. Uh, and we're going to sing this song together and sing it from your heart. And we'll, uh, we'll close in prayer afterwards. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And they're speaking, of course, of Jesus. And this is fundamentally our message. Our trust is not in presidents, congressmen, business people, even our parents as virtuous as many of our parents have been. Our trust is in the one who is worthy of our praise, our adoration, our devotion exclusively, and that's Jesus. I just want to encourage you. Put your trust, your faith in him. Follow him. Regardless of where anybody else leads, follow them to the extent they're following Jesus. When they start steering off the path, you just know that's a problem. Because this is where Jesus is going. And that's where I'm going. That's what God's calling us to do. The world would be a better place. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. We're going to pray. Let's just dedicate ourselves one more time to uh, following Jesus' extraordinary leadership. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, for your humility before the Father and before us. What other king of old would have allowed himself to be humiliated publicly and physically abused as you did on the cross even if it purchased freedom for his subjects but you did it we are not worthy of a king like you we have lived lives far from the kind of character that you have modeled and called us to but thank you, thank you, thank you that you have loved us in spite of our shortcomings and that you gave your life, you shed your blood, that if we put our hope and our trust in you forever, we could be rescued from the sin and its consequences, from all the corruption of this world and all the consequences that will come because of it. We humble ourselves before you this morning. We thank you. We invite you to fill us. As you empowered your early church, Lord Jesus, would you empower us Empower us to be holy. Empower us to be loving like you're loving. Empower us to be good, to make a difference in our world for the better. Help us to not just be blindly following everybody else's actions around us. Help us to be lights, to be salt, to be agents of good, godly, virtuous change in our world, to follow you.
as you have followed the teachings of the Father in your word. Thank you for every person here, Father. Thank you on some level, every one of us wants to do that. Help us. Help us to want to even more. Empower us to do, to do good, to overcome evil with good in the world in which we live. So we leave this place, Father. Would you go with us? Would you guide us? And we thank you for saving us. It's our prayer, and we lift it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all.